mean, taking a gamble isn't exactly the kind of vibe that I want to hear on a Supreme Court bench. <laughs> there are a lot of vibes on that bench that are not the kind of thing that any of us should want to hear. Um, the vibes are yeah. off. The vibes are very off. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Hey, Unladies, it's Kristen. This is an Unladies Room bonus episode that I simply could not keep behind the Patreon paywall. Last week, I had the pleasure of talking to two of the three hosts of Crooked Media's excellent Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny. In case you missed it, the Supreme Court is back for a brand new term. And I just needed to know what fresh hell might be awaiting us. And I had such a good time, though, talking to Leah Littman and Kate Shaw, who are two brilliant law professors, podcasters, Supreme Court watchers. And I was just so, so glad that they were down to come and talk and give their analysis on what's going on at the Supreme Court, and also we zero in on a couple of cases that have some very unladylike intersections. And listen, if if you are not yet a patron, maybe consider doing that. It's $5 a month, and the more the merrier. On Ladies Room, I mean, it is an all-genders space, so everyone is welcome, and this is the kind of bonus content that you get. Okay, enough enough with my plugs. <laughs> Let's get to the conversation. To start, could y'all just introduce yourselves and share who you are, what you do, and why? Do you want to start, Leah? Uh, sure. Although I was going to offer to have you go first. So um, I'm Leah Littman. I am a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. And along with Kate and Melissa Murray, who's unfortunately not here uh, for this episode, uh, I co-host Strict Scrutiny, which is a weekly podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. So in my job as a professor, you know, I write and teach and research about constitutional law and the federal courts and the Supreme Court in particular. I've also practiced before the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, in cases involving the President Trump's rescission to the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, as well as some abortion cases. Um, so kind of in and around the court for a while. And I'm Kate Shaw. I'm one of the other co-hosts of Strict Scrutiny. I also have a day job as a law professor. I teach at Cardozo Law School in New York City. Um, and for a little over four years, uh, Leah and Melissa and I have been doing about once a week, sometimes more during the busy season, um, a podcast about the Supreme Court, really animated by a desire to bring women's voices, voices of people of color, voices that are not typically well represented in the discourse about the Supreme Court in particular and about the law more broadly um, to as wide an audience uh, as we're able to to. And, um, you know, the Supreme Court does unbelievably important things that affect all of our lives. And we are just trying to do our part to sort of bring, uh, you know, spotlight to bear on the work that they do. I would imagine it's been uh, quite a four years to follow along and watch with everything happening on the bench. It has been eventful. It has. And I mean, I do think that a lot of people really did start paying close attention to the court during the run-up to and obviously in the wake of the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe, of course. Um, and, you know, I think that 
the groundwork had been laid for years, right, for the eventual overturning of Roe. Uh, and so I think that it has been gratifying to see people start to pay close attention to the court, obviously not under circumstances we ever would have wished for. Um, but I think that the court is stealthily moving the law across a huge swath of areas, including things like the power of government to respond to the climate emergency, to the expansion of religious liberty exemptions from generally applicable laws. I mean, uh, obviously the essential elimination of affirmative action and higher education. I mean, the list is really, really long. Um, and, you know, it's not in any way to diminish the enormous importance of Dobbs and the right to abortion. Obviously, there's kind of nothing more consequential in our perspective. But the court isn't done, I think, is a really important point that we are trying to make every week. Um, in some ways, it's just getting started. So before we dig into the SCOTUS docket, y'all just launched your fifth season in October. So what is on the strict scrutiny docket this winter? So we tend to follow what the Supreme Court is doing. And so that means, you know, what's on our docket is kind of what is on their docket. And they have an awful lot on their docket this year. Um, So there are cases that are really about like how government works, how government works for us, whether it works for us, how we interact with the government. There are cases about whether government officials can block you on social media. There are cases about whether administrative agencies like the Environmental Protection um, Agency or other agencies, you know, get to decide questions about the meaning of federal laws or whether that will instead be done by federal courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, There is the major Second Amendment case about whether the court will allow the federal government to essentially disarm arm, you know, individuals who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders, it is possible the court is going to hear the case about the future of medication abortion in the United States. So that's all very likely on our docket, because that's just some of the stuff the court might be doing. And I'll also say, we're, we're, you know, in addition to following the substantive cases the court is hearing, so we preview the cases before the arguments, and then we try to break them down after they happen. And then, of course, at the end of the term, the court typically issues its biggest opinions in May and June. So we're watching very closely to try to, you know, read, understand, and help explain as quickly as possible when those big cases come down. So all of that is happening sort of starting in October and kind of ramping up throughout the year until June. Um, but in the last, you know, six months, and I expect in the foreseeable future, we have just had this cascade of revelations about kind of ethics scandals at the Supreme Court, right? The accepting of largesse from these billionaire benefactors, the failure to disclose gifts and vacations and you know luxury travel and things like that. And so I do think that it's a moment in which investigative reporting is really turning its eye on the Supreme Court in a way that it really hasn't previously. Um, and that's something that we're following very closely and I think is a really welcome development. I mean, the court not only wields this unbelievable and largely unreviewable power, but it has largely operated without a lot of, you know, sunlight in in terms of its inner workings. And so, um, you know, the Times and ProPublica and other investigative outlets are devoting considerable resources to, you know, doing real investigative journalism about the court. And so that's something that we follow really closely and that we will continue to follow closely as it develops. And then just kind of one additional thing, which is, you know, as Kate kind of alluded to, it is difficult to understand the court if you just look at the court, you know, sometimes every year in May or June and look at the decisions in isolation. So we also often talk about things that are happening like in the lower federal courts or in the conservative legal movement more broadly so that we can better understand where the Supreme Court might be going. And so things don't take people, you know, quite as much by surprise as the court overruling Roe, I think, did for some. A couple of basic questions just to orient listeners 
how does the court decide which cases to hear each term? Great question. The court has almost entire control over what cases it takes up. So it typically, you know, the court will get something like eight or nine or 10,000 petitions, you know, cases basically asking the court to take them up every year. And in recent years, the court has been taking something like almost as, you know, getting down to around 50 or 60 or 70. It used to be much higher than that, but the number has gotten very low. So it's a tiny, tiny percentage of the cases, you know, vying for the court's review that the court decides to take. And there are nine justices, and it takes four votes to grant what's called cert or certiorari. And so they just basically have to have four of them interested in taking up a question. And there are typically guidelines that will essentially give the public and give the justices some guidance about you know when they're supposed to exercise that discretionary authority. So in situations where there's, say, a single federal law and lower courts have come out differently about the meaning of that law, or where there's a big federal statute and a lower court has struck down that federal statute, or there's a big, big question of national importance. Um, but, you know, in particular, that last category, that's pretty subjective, right? So honestly, it's essentially anything you can get four justices to agree that they want to take up and a question that they want to answer. Uh, and they can do that. And I think in Supreme Court reform circles, there are a lot of conversations ongoing about whether there should be more constraints placed on how much authority the justices have, not just to decide cases, but to decide what to decide, right? There's this enormously powerful kind of agenda setting function that the decision to even take up a question serves. And right now, there's not a lot constraining their ability to do that. So if they want to, say, reconsider whether the Constitution protects the right to abortion, you know, even if basically all the lower courts have said, well, Roe is the law of the land and it's been settled for nearly a half century, four of them can agree to take that up. And then you need five votes to win a case. So if four of them think they could get a fifth actually to rule the way they want to, then they may just gamble and take up that case. Can the docket at this point, even just like their selection of of cases that they will hear, tell you anything about where the court might be heading come next spring? Absolutely. So I do think that there are a few clues about, you know, what the justices' priorities are. So Kate mentioned, you know, their ability to select which cases they hear gives them some power to set their agenda. And one thing that this court has signaled, you know, both in selecting which cases to hear, as well as, you know, issuing decisions in cases it has already decided to hear is a real hostility to how a lot of federal governance works today through the administrative state. So there's a series of cases that are challenging the authority of administrative agencies. There was a case challenging, you know, whether the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is constitutionally structured or whether, you know, courts can just declare everything that the CFPB does illegal. There are cases about whether the Securities and Exchange Commission and other agencies that enforce, you know, like regulatory laws that protect consumers can actually enforce those laws within their agencies. And then there are the cases about the future of a doctrine that's known as Chevron, which is about whether agencies or courts will be the ones to resolve, you know, ambiguity when it's unclear what these federal laws mean. And, you know, in the past terms, as well as in selecting these cases, in particular the Chevron case, I think the court has signaled that it is very keen on reining in the administrative state and federal agencies, which again are just like a big part of how government works today. One case that y'all have highlighted in your preview of the upcoming term 
that I really want to dig in on is Atchison Hotels v. Lawfer. What is being decided in the case and why is it important? Sure, I, I can start us off on this one. Um, so this is a case that was argued uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it's a case that could have significant implications for the future of the enforcement of our civil rights laws. Um, although, as maybe I'll explain, after the oral argument, I think we were less concerned than we were going in that the court was going to just basically burn down this concept known as tester standing. So maybe I'll explain what that is. Um, this is just a method of civil rights enforcement that is longstanding, has a long pedigree. It's basically, you know, a way to figure out if violations of law are happening, um, including, you know, in some early important cases that involve the Fair Housing Act. So the Fair Housing Act, you know, says you can't discriminate, among other things, on the basis of race in housing. Um, but whether that's happening is sometimes a little bit difficult to detect, like on the ground. Um, and so, you know, you can basically figure out whether like a landlord or uh, somebody selling a house is discriminating by sending what are known as testers, so say black and white prospective tenants or prospective buyers, to basically inquire or tour a property and just figure out what information they get. And if you get different answers coming back, if you have white testers and black testers, that will help give information about whether the civil rights laws are being violated. So the, again, this is a sort of long-standing mechanism for rooting out discrimination, including in, but not exclusively in housing. And the courts have allowed that if an individual known as a tester goes out and is discriminated against, they can sue to enforce the civil rights laws. Um, and in fact, it's been a really important mechanism for enforcing the civil rights laws. So here you have someone who is a tester um, in that she is going out and finding violations, not of the Fair Housing Act, but of the Americans with Disability Act, um, with, Disabil with the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA. Um, and at issue here is this question of whether hotels are supposed to, under the ADA, provide information on their websites about accessibility. Like, are you going to be able to visit this hotel? Is it accessible? Is it compliant with the ADA? Um, and then when she has found websites that of hotels that are not compliant, she has filed a lawsuit. Um, and so there's a question whether, you know, one of the challenges too that these that this defendant initially brought was that she did not have standing. She didn't have the legal right to kind of come forward and challenge the failure to provide this information on the hotel websites because she wasn't injured in a way that would give rise to an actionable claim that a court would recognize. Um, so that's kind of what's at issue in this case, both whether she has standing to enforce this provision of the ADA, but at least initially it seemed, the broader question of whether this was a mechanism of civil rights enforcement that was even going to be allowed going forward was something that seemed to be in question. And it seemed at the oral arguments as though there had been a backing away from this broader question. And really at issue here was the ability to enforce this particular provision of the ADA in the way that this plaintiff was seeking to do as opposed to civil rights enforcement more broadly. Um, and there's also a possibility that actually this case, the court isn't even going to decide uh, like on the merits, so substantively. Instead, this is a case where this plaintiff actually withdrew her complaint and has said she doesn't wish to proceed with the suit. And in addition, the hotel that initially failed to provide 
the information about accessibility now does on its website, and the hotel has been sold to a different owner. So for at least three distinct reasons, there's a very good argument the court should not decide this case at all, instead should deem the case what is called moot, meaning essentially there's just no live dispute for the for the court to resolve. So so big, big questions at issue in the case, but I think very likely those questions, and, and thankfully, given I think this court and its proclivities, unlikely to be answered on the merits in this case. And with the civil rights, being a civil rights tester and like tester standing, all of that was news to me before uh, I listened to strict scrutiny and learned all about it. Thank you very much. Um, Yay! (laughs) Doing our part. (laughs) But just to clarify this for listeners, the plaintiff in this case has filed hundreds of these kinds of lawsuits, but it's not a predatory kind of money-making scheme on her part, right? Is it essentially kind of advocacy, legal advocacy work that that she's doing? Yeah. I mean, I think she views herself, right, as an advocate for other individuals who are living with, you know, disabilities because, you know, um, the specific type of claims that she is raising in this case don't actually allow her to recover damages, right? They don't allow her to recover money. But part of what the ADA is designed to do is actually ensure access to facilities for individuals who are living with disabilities. But if these facilities aren't complying with the ADA, and individuals go to the facilities not knowing that in advance, then they aren't going to be able to access the facilities. And so the ADA isn't actually working to ensure access, you know, to civil society if the ADA actually isn't being followed. And so what testers are trying to do is identify violations of the ADA before they actually prevent an individual from being able to enter into a facility or being able to access an accommodation. And so here she says, look, this hotel doesn't post accessibility information. And so an individual isn't going to know whether, right, they can use the hotel if, say, right, they use a wheelchair, right, to get around. And so she is trying to get this information out there and get places to actually offer accommodations that would result in the inclusion of people living with certain disabilities. But I think the premise of your question, Kristen, was so good because it was, you know, the the fact that there have been hundreds of, that she has, you know, identified hundreds of noncompliant facilities and filed many, many lawsuits, I think was suggested by some of the skeptical justices at oral arguments. You know, at least there was the tenor to some of their questions that there was something untoward about or improper about, like at the very, at the best that, that, that she was sort of a nuisance plaintiff, but at worst was like doing something improper. But exactly as Leah just said, this was not something that she was engaged in for personal financial benefit. She does seem to have understood herself to be identifying violations of law and seeking to rectify them. Like that's essentially it. Um, so I, I'm not sure that, 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 even what the kind of substance of the objection that these justices, again, they were sort of alluding to something being, you know, troubling about the volume of litigation. Um, And I think, you know, there was 
we got the sense from a couple of the justices as though they would very much like to reach the merits of this case and to rule against her precisely because they were skeptical of the volume of litigation that she brought, that they wanted to somehow disincentivize people from bringing all of these lawsuits. Um, but that seems totally unjustified, right? Like they're going to res- to rule out of spite, essentially, mm. against her in a suit like this, where nothing that she has been engaged in as far as we know from the record, what redounded to her personal financial benefit. This was essentially, you know, public interest lawyering or, you know, plaintiff, public interest sort of plaintiff uh, with her lawyer's uh, activity, um, not something for personal financial gain. And why did she ask, like you mentioned, ask the court basically to, or did she like fully withdraw her complaint like why was she like okay actually no 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 uh scotus thanks no thanks so there are a couple of you know i i'm not sure um i you know i will say there have been at least i think two separate shows so she's got all this litigation and in least in, in at least two instances um lawyers representing her in one case potentially involving her case in another involving an independent matter um were involved in disciplinary action that I think seemed to potentially taint kind of like the overall public perception potentially of her litigation. Um, and so I think that's part of it. Um, there was also a suggestion made at oral argument that the reason that she sought to have the case dismissed was because, you know, a lot of these cases were filed some time ago. The composition of this court is a very conservative court right now. And so potentially she saw the writing on the walls and was concerned about a, a ruling against her and preferred not to take her chances in the Supreme Court. So I'm not sure if that was at play as well. Again, certainly that was floated as a possibility. I, I don't think we totally know, but I'm not sure that her motivations quite matter if, if what the law requires is that there is an active dispute between two adverse parties, um, then the fact that that pretty clearly doesn't exist in this case, I think should just on the law require the dismissal of the case as moot. But I, I don't have myself like a, a perfect answer to the to the question of why. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, this could be a very apples to oranges kind of question I'm about (laughs) to ask. But as I was reading about Atchison and thinking about this, it reminded me of, in an inverse way, of last year's Supreme Court decision on the Colorado website designer who challenged the state's anti-discrimination law because she didn't want to make same-sex wedding websites and claimed the law infringed on her right to basically like make that known on her website. Is that almost like an inverse version of civil rights testing like i don't know if any of that makes sense but like no it definitely it, it definitely does and honestly like a lot of people have kind of like picked up on this oddity so maybe i'll try to like explain where i think some of the tension is and then also where some of the differences are um so i think like some of the similarities 
arise in that in both cases, you kind of have individuals coming to court, you know, before there has been a violation of some law and saying, like, we want you court, right, to basically say, you know, is this law being complied with? You know, does the law have to be complied with? So they're asking the court, right, to reach some ruling either before in the ADA example, right, an ADA violation prevents an individual from accessing a facility, or in the 303 creative case, you know, before Colorado actually tries to like punish the wedding website designer who doesn't want to make the wedding website for individuals. Um, now, part of the reason why these things are in tension with one another is, you know, they relate to this concept of standing, you know, as Kate was saying, the fact that an individual who sues in federal court is supposed to have to establish some risk of future injury. And it didn't necessarily seem like the wedding website designer in 303 Creative was, say, like more likely to be injured than, you know, one of the tester standing plaintiffs or an individual who might need to access a facility would be injured because, you know, she hadn't yet made wedding websites. She hadn't been asked to make a wedding website by, you know, a, a gay or lesbian couple. And so, you know, there's some uncertainty in both cases. Um, and I think more generally, this kind of gets at the law of standing, that is who's injured and who is not, is extremely malleable. And I think the court often manipulates it to allow the court to either decline, right, to address cases where it just doesn't really want to. But in other cases, it just kind of ignores the requirements and proceeds ahead to say whatever it wants. So in addition to the 303 creative decision from last term, in the student debt relief case, you know, it's not at all clear that the states who sued to challenge the president's debt relief program were injured when the president canceled, you know, a bunch of individual student debt, but the court allowed them to challenge that anyways. So the court has always been, I think, inconsistent in policing the requirement that individuals are harmed. Um, I, I actually tend to think that the like problems in 303 Creative arose more from the fact that the wedding website designer was arguing that like she had a constitutional right to decline to design wedding websites for same-sex couples, but because she never designed wedding websites, we don't actually know like what her designing a wedding website would look like. And that made it strange for her to argue, I have a constitutional right to refuse to offer a service because that service is expressive in nature and I'm speaking. But like, we don't even know what her wedding websites look like. For all we know, she's like copy pasting some text, right, from one wedding website onto another. For all we know, she's just like copy pasting what the couples provide to her, in which case it's like not super expressive, right? You know, if you just like take a little icon of a heart and put it on a wedding website, I mean, I just don't know how much you're expressing. And so, like, that's part of what made it odd. And that problem just doesn't exist in tester standing cases because there you have these facilities that we know what they're doing and they're not complying with ADA. So there isn't that level of uncertainty in the tester standing cases, even if there might be, like, some other uncertainty about when, you know, individuals might want to use those facilities. I also wanted to ask about U.S. v. Rahimi, because the central question, even though I shouldn't be shocked, I was kind of like, what? How, how, is, this, <laughs> how is this up in the air, y'all? 
Right. Well, so the question that that is at stake and that you kind of can't believe is an open question <laughs> is whether the federal government can bar people who are un, under domestic violence restraining orders from possessing guns, right? Um, and it seems like that's kind of a common sense no-brainer that government should be able to do that. And yet it is a very open question whether the court will allow that law to stand or will strike it down as unconstitutional. Um, and the reason that that, you know, long-ish standing federal law is even kind of now in question is because of the court's decision just over a year ago in a case called NYSERPA versus Bruin. We'll call it just Bruin. Um, and in that case, the court struck down uh, the kind of concealed weapons law in New York, um, which had required that individuals who wanted a license to carry a concealed weapon basically make some sort of showing of need. Like they had to show they had some reason to be fearful or something along those lines before they could get a, less, a, a license to carry a concealed weapon. And the court in that case struck that law down and basically said, New York had to, you know, issue a permit for carrying concealed weapons to essentially everyone who wanted one. That's a, a little bit of an oversimplification, but that's basically right. So this kind of turned New York and other states that had tried to limit, you know, the number of weapons that were being carried around concealed in really crowded places like the, the New York's law and a number of other states' laws fell uh, in that Bruin decision. Um, but maybe even more important than what Bruin said about these con concealed weapons laws um, was what it said kind of more broadly about what test courts should apply to any gun regulation. And basically what it announced was this completely novel test that said, in order to sort of justify a contemporary gun regulation, so a gun regulation like on the books today, a government has to show that that regulation is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of gun regulation. So a gun law is only constitutional today if it looks like gun laws from the distant past, um, which is kind of a facially preposterous test because there might well be lots of good reasons to regulate guns today in ways that don't look like the ways we regulated guns or didn't always regulate guns in the past, but it's a method that kind of ties us today to the past, um, and not just like sort of how guns were approached or thought about in the past, but what laws were actually enacted. And guess what? In the distant past, whether we're talking about right when the original Constitution was drafted and ratified in the late 1780s and early 1790s, or when the 14th Amendment was drafted and ratified, which is in 1868, um, either of those historical periods were obviously periods in which lawmakers were wildly underrepresentative of the polity today, right? Like it was just basically white men making the laws in both of those periods of time, but essentially we're stuck with those laws, says this test the court announced in Bruin. So hopefully that like groundwork makes it clear why this is such, uh, it's both a crazy open question, but it's it, it makes sense given that background that this question would be open. So can we have a law disarming abusers today if we didn't have laws disarming abusers in the past? And on the logic that the court laid out in Bruin, it's not clear that that law could possibly survive. But all that does to our mind is just reveal the the kind of ludicrousness of the test the court announced in Bruin. So, you know, no, we did not historically have laws prohibiting abusers from having guns, but we also didn't have laws criminalizing domestic violence or even a concept of domestic violence as such um, until quite recently in many states. And so if the test really does mean what the court said, you know, last year it meant this law might not survive. And in fact, that's what the lower court in this case, the Fifth Circuit said. Um, but it's just such a preposterous suggestion. Um, and also just, you know, the numbers on the incidence of not just violence, but lethal in violence and the way the sort of lethality increases when there is a gun involved in a domestic violence situation, I think 
you know, the risk of intimate partner violence increases something or intimate partner homicide rather increases something like 500% when abusers have access to a firearm. This is in one of the amicus briefs in the case. Um, so kind of the policy arguments in favor of a law like this are so powerful. Um, and I think the kind of, you know, public response risk so real in this case that I think there's a very significant chance that justices will say, well, we didn't exactly mean to go as far as we did in that case last term. We're going to modify the test slightly, um, which would be good if that resulted in this law being upheld, certainly. But if they still stick with this idea that history essentially is the beginning and the end of, of any kind of analysis of a gun law and its constitutionality, that's still an enormous problem and enormous obstacle in terms of government's ability to devise meaningful responses to you know, the epidemic of gun violence. I mean, like, there's so much to say about Rahimi, you know, in some ways, like the facts of Rahimi are just emblematic of the problem. You know, this is an individual who, you know, was assaulting his partner in a parking lot. And then, you know, because some people in the parking lot saw him do it, he took out a gun and fired at them. Um, you know, he is put under a domestic violence restraining order, and then violates the order, um, and then separately, you know, continues to have a firearm. And as Kate was saying, like, the oddity of the Bruin test is its insistence that the statistics she mentioned, and all of the other statistics about the relationship between guns and domestic violence and death are just irrelevant. Like Bruin says, it just truly doesn't matter that this law would save people's lives. It just doesn't matter that this law would actually go a long way to reducing the epidemic of, of gun violence. All that matters is that a bunch of dudes, right, enacted <laughs> these laws in like the 1700s and 1800s. And that is just, again, like no way to run a rodeo. Yeah, I mean, the founding fathers, like, did not probably even conceptualize of domestic violence like as a thing. And then thinking even about the guns that were accessible to them, they were probably working with muskets, not like right. it just like none of it none of it makes sense. So my follow-up question is, is it all Clarence Thomas's fault? <laughs> I mean, Thomas was the author of the opinion in Bruin that created this insane test. And it the test is, you know, so opportunistic and selective in the way that you just said, Kristen. It doesn't even ask whether the guns being regulated today look like the guns of yore. It just says all guns are protected by the Second Amendment, sort of presumptively. And we have to ask whether the restriction is consistent with history. So there is this profound asymmetry in the way history is even deemed relevant in the test. Um, but, you know, it's Thomas and five others who signed on to this test. So I don't think we can lay the blame at the feet of Clarence Thomas alone. <laughs> it's all of them. Yeah. Pivoting out of Rahimi, Leah, you mentioned earlier that there's a chance that the Mifepristone case could be taken up. This was a case that Unladylike was very much following. Don't get me started on Matthew Kesmeric. <laughs> but do do y'all think that that will end up on the docket? 
I mean, it's certainly going to end up on the docket. The question is just when. Mm. Um, the federal government has already asked the Supreme Court to review the lower court decisions. Um, so has the drug manufacturer. Um, just as a reminder, you know, the district court concluded that the FDA was wrong to have ever approved mifepristone in the first place. That decision would have revoked the FDA's approval and rendered mifepristone an unauthorized drug. Um, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, you know, just decided, well, we're just going to like slap on a few additional restrictions to mifepristone that the FDA decided, you know, were entirely unwarranted based on science and medicine. And those additional restrictions could also, you know, temporarily make it extremely difficult to provide mifepristone because they would mean that current, you know, versions of mifepristone are essentially mislabeled and therefore might not be able to be distributed. Um, so the federal government and the drug manufacturer have asked the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene in these decisions. Last year, the U.S. Supreme Court paused the lower court's ruling saying, like, these rulings aren't going to go into effect until we, U.S. Supreme Court, decide whether to fully review the cases. And I think that, too, is a pretty good sign that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to want to hear these cases um, rather than just allowing, you know, the Fifth Circuit to impose a bunch of judicial restrictions on Mifepristone. To my mind, also, I think there's a really important timing question. I totally agree with Leah. It's a question of when and not if the court takes this case up. And John Roberts is a very, you know, politically attuned operator. And I... I'm sure he would love to have this case decided as either as far from the presidential election as possible, or I suppose, depending on how it comes out, you know, maybe actually close if, in fact, these justices are going to do something that seems less insane than what the lower courts did and thereby potentially buy some goodwill among, say, independent voters by not, you know, second guessing what the FDA has done. So so I, I, I would be very surprised if Roberts and others on the court are not thinking about this case with the 2024 presidential election in mind from the perspective of timing. Because I think they very much know that the 2022 midterm elections were very impacted by the Dobbs decision. And if this court were to essentially declare unlawful mifepristone nationwide, which, you know, is not outside of the realm of the possible if there's a cross petition, which I guess there isn't one pending right now, um, I, that would be wildly politically unpopular and could have political consequences. So I, I don't know exactly what that's going to mean in terms of timing, but just as the justices control what questions they take up, they have a lot of control over when they decide to even hear particular cases. So it could happen pretty quickly, or if they wanted to try to put it off until after the election next fall, I'm not sure there's anything stopping them from doing that. And is there any chance that a majority won't agree with Kaczmarek? I mean, I, I think that there is a chance. I think that does, you know, timing might play into that a little. I think it is extremely unlikely you have a majority of justices saying, yeah, we're going to go ahead and like revoke Mifepristone in the lead up to the 2024 presidential election. Um, I also don't think there's even a majority 
on the court in the lead up to the 2024 election to go along with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuits imposing additional restrictions on Mifepristone. Like the claims are just so outlandish, not based in evidence. They rest on the idea that pro-life doctors are somehow injured when other doctors prescribe other patients Mifepristone, and they're just like completely bizarre and strange. So, you know, I I think that if the court, right, gets this case in the current term, I don't think there is a majority for either Kaczmarek's bottom line or the Fifth Circuit's. You know, I'm not super confident on the Fifth Circuit, but I think the longer the court delays in hearing the case, you know, that does increase the odds that they would go along with at least the Fifth Circuit. Um, uh, and, you know, the other thing I would add is the fact that there isn't, you know, a majority on the court now to go along with that ruling says nothing about whether there would be a majority on the court to go along with that ruling, let's say in like three years or like five years. You know, I mean, if Trump wins the election in 2024, um, think about some of the people he could appoint to the Supreme Court to replace, you know, any of the Democratic appointees or the current Republican ones. You know, that might include the judges on the Fifth Circuit who went along with, you know, part of Judge Kaczmarek's ruling. And so it would just be a mistake to say, because these claims are so outlandish, they will never succeed. The question is, like, are they going to succeed right now? You know, that's partially contingent on timing and other things. Um, But it would just be wrong to say like these claims are always going to be out of bounds for perpetuity. And am I correct in thinking that the alliance defending freedom is behind this case, like on the plaintiff side? Yes. So it's a group of pro-life doctors um, who are the parties who claim, as Leah was just saying, that they are injured through some chance that someone else's patient could present at an emergency room with complications after receiving mifepristone and that they're somehow injured thereby. Um, But yes, ADF, um, the Alliance of Finding Freedom, has been involved in just a ton of litigation, including the 303 Creative case that we were just talking about, the wedding website designer, um, and represented these doctors before the lower court, the the Judge Kaczmarek in the district court, and the Fifth Circuit. So this is yet another of their cases. The ADF, unfortunately, has just become a running theme on Unladylike because of all of their legal victories in the high court and in lower courts. And I'm just curious if y'all are keeping a side eye on them as well of what kinds of cases they're trying to push to the Supreme Court, possibly. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, we've talked about how in the 303 creative case, you know, it would be a mistake to, for example, say, well, the court just issued an opinion, a ruling in that case that is confined to wedding website designers and other individuals engaged in pure speech. Because, of course, when Alliance Defending Freedom, which brought the 303 creative case, they also brought other cases, you know, that represent bakers. They are also litigating other cases, you know, in which they are challenging LGBTQ equality. And so, Yeah, like, I feel like it is important to understand where the law is going and where it might go next to look at like what else ADF and other organizations are doing. Things are heavy, you know, these are a lot of like big issues. And before I let y'all go, is there good news maybe on the horizon? Oof, we're a Supreme Court podcast. This is, this is, (laughs) (laughs) that is tough. I will, I will say, 
the newest member of the Supreme Court, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, is just like a breath of fresh air, like a ray of sunshine, all the things. If your listeners don't, um, you know, as we do, sit down and listen to the live streamed oral arguments of the Supreme Court, um, which, you know, we kind of have to do uh, and probably would do even if we didn't have a podcast. Um, She is this extraordinary force from the bench and listening to her just kind of dismantle the arguments of a lawyer in front of her is, I think, a rare source of joy if we're looking to identify it. So so I'll, I'll offer that up. Leah, do you have anything else? Honestly, uh, beyond that, um, not so sure. You know, the only other thing I would say is just, I think the increased attention and focus on, you know, not just what the Supreme Court is doing, but what is happening in the lower federal courts, the differences between the parties on the courts, what the conservative legal movement is trying to achieve, right, over the longer term, like all of that is super important to our democracy, right? It's part of being an informed citizen. It's part of how we might constrain the court in the future. So, you know, just the interest in the court and people's willingness to like be engaged and learn about what the court is doing, I think, you know, is a hopeful sign. Well, are there any important cases or anything that y'all are going to be covering on strict scrutiny that we haven't touched on that you want to make sure listeners keep an ear out for? I mean, maybe one thing that we are constantly beating the drum over is paying attention to state courts in this moment where the Supreme Court is ceasing to be a guardian of our rights and in many ways is deeply hostile to even long-settled constitutional rights. State constitutions and state courts are, I think, turning out to be an incredibly important place to turn. Not that they're going to be a panacea, but that they, even more than the Supreme Court, have been kind of neglected in our understanding um, and in sort of people's kind of political lives and um, and focus and attention. And so these are often these very sleepy races, state judicial elections. People don't pay a lot of attention to the Wisconsin Supreme Court election, you know, both in April, um, uh, last, you know, February and then in April um, that resulted in... Um, the newest justice, Justice Protosewitz uh, in Wisconsin, was one that a lot of people nationwide were paying close attention to, but there are just a bunch of other really important judicial elections um, on the horizon. So I would say that to the extent that people aren't focused on those, like a lot of important rights questions about the future of abortion access, uh, about you know, the functioning of democracy. A lot of those are questions that are going to be resolved in state courts in the next two, four, six years. Um, And so I would just say people engaging with or re-engaging with their state courts and state constitutions is a really kind of important exhortation, if I can give one, that that, that we think is increasingly important, especially right now. Well, I have just one last question for y'all that I ask all of my guests. What is the most unladylike thing about you? I don't know. I don't watch any reality TV. Is that is that unladylike? <laughs> <laughs> that counts. I mean, it's 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 fully subjective. And honestly, I I I I, I see that. I feel I feel certain guilt about it. I feel like Leah Melissa <laughs> do. I feel like many people. I think you do. I think people that I really respect like watch a lot of. Bravo and other reality TV and I don't. And so I feel a sense of shame and guilt about it. So I'm offering that up. Well, and on the flip side, though, I feel a sense of shame and guilt about the volume of Bravo content (laughs) that I consume. (laughs) 
Yeah. So um, if I had to pick, I don't know. I don't know whether this counts as like ladylike or unladylike, but like walking into work in a boys lie sweatshirt and Mm, yoga pants with like mm. no makeup. Like, is that ladylike or unladylike? I'm not sure. Whatever it is, I do it. Um, So, (laughs) yeah. Okay, and ladies, that was the conversation. Thank you so much to Kate Shaw and Leah Littman for taking the time to come on and give us their POV on what's ahead for the Supreme Court. And I should note that just in the week since I talked to them, opening arguments, I believe, have happened in U.S. v. Rahimi. And the good news is that so far the justices seem to be be on the practical side of things of understanding that the federal gun law should, yeah, that should probably stay in place. It is, I mean, my God, it's the least they could do, right? And be sure to go listen to Strict Scrutiny. Find it, subscribe. They are excellent. And they bring the kind of unladylike rage to their expert legal analyses that I think that y'all will really appreciate. And hey, if you appreciate Unladylike, consider supporting the show by joining the Patreon. Just search Unladylike Media in the Patreon app or go to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia, $5 a month or more if you want to give more to join. And it makes a huge difference for keeping this podcast going. So thank you to everyone who is an Unladies Room patron. And for those of you who aren't, I hope to see you there very soon. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Go listen to Strict Scrutiny. Thank you, Leah and Kate. Until next week. The vibes are off. The vibes are very (laughs) off. They are. (laughs)